0: Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mekaitis. Hello, and thanks so
1: much for joining us here for episode 752 with Leah Garvin. If you're feeling a little bit stuck or burnt out or beat down, Leah's got some great tips for you to keep rocking and rolling, moving on up and feeling good. So you'll learn one key phrases to avoid using at work, two, the questions to ask when you're stuck, and three, how to overcome imposter syndrome. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or some of the links to pieces that we mentioned here, please pay a so visit at slash ep 752 And here's Leah's story. Leah Garvin is an operations leader and executive coach on a mission to humanize the workplace one conversation at a time. She has nearly 10 years of experience working in some of the largest and most influential companies in tech, including Microsoft, Apple, and Google, to explore the power of reframing to overcome common challenges found in the modern workplace. She's a TEDx speaker and will be featured at South by Southwest in Austin. In 2022. Through her writing, leadership coaching, and program management skills, she helps teams examine the challenges that hold them back and focus on what matters. She is also a co-active and ICF certified professional coach. She lives in Corta Madera, California. Big thanks to Leah for sharing her wisdom with us. Big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free Now, here's Leah. Leah, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job.
2: Thank you so much. Excited to be here.
1: Well, I'm excited to discuss getting unstuck. But first, I think we need to get to the bottom of, is it true that you are descended from one of the 300 Spartan warriors?
2: I mean, that's what they tell me. So my mom's family's Greek Mm -hmm. from Sparta. We've been there. We've seen it. And when the movie 300 came out, my mom was like, oh, yeah, that's us. And I said, okay, I don't have any historical documents to prove it. <laughs> but uh one day I was heart set on figuring out that three hundred ab training workout that <laughs> that all of them did oh, to yeah. to prepare. Yeah.
1: <laughs> So There were impressive physiques in that. Yeah, <laughs> that
2: was yeah cool. for sure.
1: I'm sure a number of personal trainers had a lot of work yeah. <laughs> associated with making that movie.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Cool. Well, so so tell us, you're an expert on getting unstuck and you wrote the book called Unstuck. Can you start us off by sharing uh, a particularly maybe surprising or counterintuitive discovery you've made about why it is so many of us find ourselves stuck?
2: Yeah. So I think one of the main reasons I've found myself getting stuck and other people getting stuck is because we keep approaching a situation through maybe we try things a little different, but we're still tackling it from the same perspective or the same way or we adjust something small. Uh, but if we took a step back, we realize we're actually still doing the same things. And so, reframing, which is the central theme of my book Unstuck, is about looking at a challenge or situation through a whole new perspective, right? Something that we haven't tried before, and then seeing all that's available there. And and when we look at something through a new perspective, needless to say, new things become possible. And and I would say one one area that I think so many of us get stuck around is feedback. Right? Feedback at work. Thinking feedback's a criticism. Mm -hmm. Feedback is someone coming to me to tell me all the things they don't like about me, or someone uh, picking on me or pulling things apart. I think when we get positive feedback, people can also have a little bit of trouble with that even. Like, okay, they're happy with this now, but what about next time? And so I think with especially things around feedback, all of these beliefs that we have get us really stuck in this narrow way of thinking. And, and a really surprising discovery I had around something like feedback was, it's actually an insight into what the other person, what the feedback giver believes and what, what they want and what they're comfortable with. It's really not really about us. Mm -hmm. And recently I had a situation where I was changing roles and I had, I had said I was moving on and, and the manager I was working with we had a good relationship. He was disappointed, but, but supportive of that. And then he said, hey, before you go, let's have a feedback conversation. And my stomach dropped. And I was like, why do I have to have a feedback conversation with someone I'm not even going to work with anymore? Like, and I went really negative with, with my thought process. Like, oh my God, is he going to th- tell me all the things he didn't like about me or all the things I did wrong? And I went immediately into this dread zone. And, you know, first I tried to reschedule it and not have the meeting at all, but Mm -hmm. but then he ended up rescheduling it. So that was out of the question. And then when, when it was leading up to the conversation, I was thinking about, okay, it's going to be a two-way street. What should I, what should I share? I want to bring in empathy and, and be specific, all the things I know about feedback, but still I was really, really dreading it. And then we had the conversation and he ended up sharing a piece of feedback that just really made me laugh and proved that it was all about my perspective. And, and that was, he had said, you know, sometimes when you deliver a piece of work, it, it looks really done and really polished. I'm not sure how to give feedback. Like, is it in progress or is it super final? Hmm. And I laughed myself because, well, I had done work that way because of other feedback I got from other managers that said, Hey, I want something final. It's gotta be polished. I just want to sign off. And I realized I was like just being thrashed by different pieces of feedback and, and that it wasn't about me. It was just about how this particular person likes to work or how they like to engage with work. And when this example hit, I realized it is so not about who we are as a person, you know, what we bring. It's about getting on the same page with someone else around shared expectations and that has made me a lot more comfortable with having a feedback conversation because first I can level set and say, Hey, you know, what are we talking about here? Uh, what does success look like? And, and then we can sort of ward off future feedback by really getting aligned up front. Hmm.
1: Well, yeah, I think that's a really cool example in terms of, so your book, the subtitle there is Unstuck Reframe. You're thinking to free yourself from the patterns and people that hold you back. And feedback is a really great area Yes. where we can have patterns. And associations. Yeah. And if you avoid it all the time, that's sure gonna hold you back. (laughs) Like, oh, feedback's uncomfortable. They're gonna judge me. They're gonna tell me all the things I've screwed up. That's really really, I'm not into it. Versus if you have a different reframe that perspective, you're like, okay, feedback is not so threatening. And thusly, I'm able to go get more of it. And thusly, I'm able to align on expectations. And thusly, people think I'm amazing. And then, you know, promotions and good things you know can flow from that. So, so that's cool. Well, so, so then I'm curious, so that's a cool example. Is that what you'd call sort of the, the big idea behind your book, Unstuck, is that there are some key things to reframe that will unlock a lot of goodies, or, or how would you articulate the main idea or thesis here?
2: Yeah, I'd say the main idea is when we find ourselves stuck, to reframe the way that we're looking at that situation. And by reframing our perspective, we unlock a new set of possibilities. And I and I take that reframing thesis and apply it to 12 different challenges that show up most commonly in the workplace. So we talked about feedback. Another one is articulating your impact, like talking about your work in a way uh, other people understand that doesn't diminish the importance of it. That really demonstrates the, the work you put in. I talk about negotiation, another really tough subject for a lot of us out there, decision making, comparison and 12 challenges that I think most of us get get stuck within the workplace, things that can be particularly fraught for women in the workplace because of all of the expectations and biases and societal norms and these sort of narratives that we often hear throughout our upbringing that we start to attach to or believe. I mean, with feedback, having to be perfect, or that everybody has to like you, or some of these things that uh, many of us might believe from, from our upbringing can make it even harder to hear feedback. W- with an example like talking about your work, some people have trouble talking about themselves at all, and then talking about our work and why it's awesome and why it's important and why it should be noticed. That can be really, really difficult for people. So the reframing, it's couched in the acknowledgement of these biases and double standards, and how our inner critic really attaches to these and makes these challenges even harder.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I love it. It's so powerful that in in each of these things, like I I could see how you can have a mindset, a frame of perspective that is troublesome, like for articulating impact, your frame of perspective might be, oh, you know, I don't want to brag. I don't want to think like, oh, he or she thinks that. They're just all that, like they're, they're so special. I don't want to be conceited. I don't want to be that guy or girl who just like makes it all about them. And it, it's just really, really unattractive. So so that could be a frame of perspective you have. And if you have it, you're not going to be articulating your impact. And then unfortunately, some key decision makers who could have some keys to your fate with regard to promotion or opportunities just won't know that uh, you, you've got the goods and may very well be ready for a cool new thing if they never heard that impact that was never articulated so i love this how we've zeroed in on on a tool for that has a, a whole range of impacts reframing so So help us out here. I I mean, maybe let's talk specifically about articulating impact and and then maybe zoom out a little bit in terms of, okay, when we need to get our reframe on, how do we go about doing that?
2: Yes. So articulating your impact. This is a funny one because... This is something I struggled with a lot. And then in coaching and in working with folks internally, especially in larger companies where you have to do things like performance reviews, I saw this just being a, a huge struggle that folks dealt with really, no matter what level of seniority they even were in an organization. And when I think about articulating your impact, I look at it in a few ways. First, it's about really shaping the narrative around your work. And this means not talking about our work in like, I do these set of things like a bulleted list of random (laughs) tasks or ideas, Mm -hmm. but of of figuring out what is the arc across your work? What is the why behind it? And then most, most important, how to connect that why to what your organization cares about. Like you talked about, you know, getting in front of the right decision makers, people that hold the keys to to things you want to unlock in your career. If we don't connect the dots there, we're leaving it to someone else to figure out the why it matters. And we are always best equipped to talk about why our work matters. And yes, it's helpful to have other people championing us and sponsoring us and and bringing visibility to our work too. But we have to have that story figured out. So my first step there is to really understand what you do, why it's important for your organization, the goals that your organization has and connecting the dots there. And then to be talking about it, not, not, you know, shouting from the rooftops everywhere all the time, but, you know, making sure that that's known by decision makers, by people that are responsible for making decisions related to your career and what kinds of projects you work on, things like that, so that they know and, and can propose you for projects or opportunities. The other piece around impact is really getting, you know, more precise with some of the language that we use when talking about our work. And one phrase I ask people to strike from their like lexicon completely is "helping out." Mm-hmm. I mean, like, we, no one's helping out. We're at work. This is our jobs, our careers. And I think we can get in the habits of in trying to sound collaborative and like a team player using words like helped out, pitched in, Mm -hmm. worked on. And it's like, worked on, like, what does that mean? (laughs) Did you, are you owning this whole project? Did someone like send you an email that you read about it? What does that mean? Mm -hmm. And so getting really specific and owning the verbs, right? I, I coaching folks around performance reviews, authored, led, drove, facilitated, brought to light. There's a lot of really powerful verbs we can use that weren't helping out. It wasn't a volunteer mm. project, and so I mean that's like that's where I always start. And then also removing we. I think this is the trap a lot. A mm-hmm. lot of us, quote unquote, <laughs> a lot of people can fall into is saying we when really I did it. And again, there's a way to talk about being a part of a group and and a collaborator without making it really unclear what your individual impact was.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's so much good stuff there, and I'm thinking about I don't know when you think of talking about owning the verbs. I'm I'm thinking about this Onion article about (laughs) verbs on resumes, and they were just absurd, (laughs) like decimated. whatever hey talk about spartans huh yeah so well well, i love it so that's that's very specific in terms of okay when it comes to articulating impact it's not about hey you're bragging you're selfish but rather we're informing people and and it's we're just getting clear in terms of we didn't just help out or work on something what's that even mean is pretty fuzzy so as we get specific folks understand you really what you did and and thusly what maybe you know skills experiences and and opportunities may just be make a lot of good sense for you and so I'm, i'm curious You've shared right then and there, hey, here's a great perspective to have, as opposed to the, oh, no, I don't want to talk about myself. How do you recommend that we, generally speaking, if we find ourselves stuck somewhere, how do we know that we're stuck? And then how do we go about getting to a better frame?
2: Yeah. I think one way to recognize we're stuck is when we keep running into the same outcome that's not what we wanted. And one example is, with like, let's say we keep asking our manager for new projects, right? A promotion. And we keep hearing it's not time yet. You're not ready yet. Mm-hmm. Or another is I applied for many years to, to work in tech and I kept sending the same kind of resume and I didn't get there. And, and for me personally, it took a lot of stopping and examining my approach. So I think first off, it's about recognizing after one or two or maybe three times of, of hitting this wall and saying and, and pausing and asking ourselves, what is the approach I've been using? And then the question, what else can I try? And the real reframing question is is really, how else can I look at this approach? I've been thinking a lot about reframing rejection and an example, applying, applying to work in in jobs in tech for a number of years, sending out the manuscript for my book to many agents and publishers and not getting a yes applying to do a TEDx talk for, for several years, not getting yes. These are three things that I had done over and over and over and kept getting nos. And it was in these moments, instead of saying, Screw it! I give up. No one wants me. No one likes me. My work sucks. I don't care. I give up. Saying, "Huh," I'm getting a signal, and now I have to shift how I'm approaching this. And and the shifting of the approach is the reframe. And with a job, maybe you look at, okay, I'm going to try a different way of writing, you know, an email when I reach out to a recruiter, or changing up my resume, or sharing it with a friend to look at, like, hey, is something being missed here with my TEDx talk, I I found a coach and I worked with someone that was able to really help me unlock how to tell my story in a better way. And with my book, you know, continuing to reframe, is it my proposal? Is it how I'm pitching it? Is it this? Because the reframe is really about shifting and not just doing the same thing over and over. And I think the definition Mm -hmm. of stuck is when we aren't able to do a new thing, right? Is when we're not seeing that we have to shift that perspective. Mm -hmm. And it does take being a little bit, intuitive, trying to be more self-aware. And so like a kind of quick tip I would say is checking in with ourselves when we're feeling really down or we're feeling frustrated and saying, hey, what's going on here? Am I falling into the same patterns? If I got a second, no. Did I really shift my approach or did I kind of just send out the same cover letter because I didn't feel like writing a new email? Mm -hmm. And being really honest with ourselves on how far have I shifted the approach to really get in the zone of newness where I can say, yeah, I really did give this a new, I really just, I really did try this through a new lens.
1: Mm -hmm. And I guess it's also, I really liked your perspective about working with a coach there in that, I mean, sometimes we might not know what results are good versus not yet. For example, let's say, I don't know if you're, if someone's like new to sales and like, I don't know, man, I've I've called like 50 people. I've only made six sales. Yeah. <laughs> you might tell me like, that's fantastic. You're yeah, doing, so you, you know, you're <laughs> yeah. like, like, I mean, it's like almost 90% of the time, they're just like bail on me. And, and so I think it's so good to get some perspective, whether it's like there's some published benchmarks or, or figures, or you just talk to someone who's gotten the result that you want, or someone who's got a whole business around coaching or providing expertise on a matter can really be be handy. And then, and I'm curious when it comes to, the, the approach and the shift, I guess I'm thinking about almost like the reframing in terms of our internal beliefs and emotions about a thing. Like even if someone tells us like, oh, this is how it's done. You're like, well, I don't know if I like that. It's like, yeah. <laughs> you know but That still feels uncomfortable to go get that feedback. I remember, for example, yes. I was reading the book, I think it was about nonprofit fundraising. It might've just been called Asking. It might've been by Jerry Panas might not have been, but reframe in terms of that. It's not that you're hounding people for their money because that's no fun for anybody. What you're doing is, in fact, it feels great to give to a cause that you believe in, that you support, and then you see some cool results or social good unfolding from, and you're like, ooh, I had a little part in that. Yes. That feels great, you know, as a donor. And so as an asker, what you're doing is you are... Inviting people to a party. And I was like, and they were like, you know what? That's not my style of party. I don't really like horror movies. I don't like costumes. You know, whatever. Yeah. (laughs) You're inviting them to a party. And those to whom it's it's a good fit will accept the invitation and be so glad that you did. And so I that really worked for me and I got a lot more comfortable asking people for money after that. Yeah. And so I'm intrigued about sort of like the mental emotional game and how we work on that if we need to, before we're comfortable shifting tactics.
2: Yes, yes. So I love that. And that example is the, it's about that perspective mindset shift. And, And so recognizing what's actually kind of at the base of what you're trying to do. And a lot of that can connect to, like you said, what is the why behind what you're doing, right? Is that this is about connecting people to something they enjoy. For example, feedback is about getting insight into how you're being perceived, right? talking about your work is about bringing visibility to like the output that you have. Yeah. Negotiating is about ensuring that you are getting the right fair equitable like outcome. Maybe it's financially maybe it's not, like for whatever you we want it's it's typically can be mutually beneficial and I think it's depersonalizing from all these things. Because when we attach like I don't like to ask for money, you've sort of made it about you when the whole thing has nothing to do with you. Oh
1: yeah. It's about the children or whoever the beneficiaries are for the organization, yeah.
2: Exactly, right. And so I think it's the first step in that mindset shift is to detach. And I have a chapter about reframing the ego because we a lot of this is an over-identification of, like, I'm at the center of whatever this is going on. Mm. And when we can get some space there, we see, well, first of all, everybody's at the center of their own universe. And so like, we're not alone there. But it actually is somewhat of an ego issue of seeing ourselves and, and having ego, overinflated ego, if you will. It doesn't mean that we think we're the greatest person on earth, but we, we're looking at things from a me-centered approach is what that means. And, and from a me-centered lens, I mean. And so to recognize, hey, I'm making this about me and what I want and what I think and what I worry and stopping and saying, what is this really about? That's how we start to shift that perspective. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's the first place to start is when another signal right beyond feeling stuck and, and kind of generally crappy. It's like, ooh, all this is leading to me and I need to get a little distance and then we can start to see what else is there.
1: Ooh, I like that a lot with the knee centered lens because I think with the negotiations like, oh, no, I don't want them to think that. Yeah, I'm greedy. I'm not satisfied, I'm entitled, I think I'm just all that. It's like, but again, that is also all me centered. Like I'm worried yeah. about the judgments they're making on me. But if I shift that perspective on negotiation, sort of like, well, no, if I bounce six months from now, because someone else pays me a lot more and is kind of has more cool things that I'm looking for and an opportunity, they're gonna be bummed. And like, oh man, we, we invested all that stuff into Pete and now he's gone. And I got to go through this whole hiring process all over again. So if I shifted from me to them, it's suddenly like, well, no, it's in their interests yeah. to give them a package, to, for them to provide a package that makes me go, sweet, this is a good deal. I like working here. Well, so far, yeah. hopefully, you know, you like like people and all that <laughs> uh, once you get in.
2: Exactly, you're ensuring you have a mutually beneficial like agreement, right, yeah. that everybody's ha- satisfied with. And mm-hmm. yeah, exactly.
1: I dig it. Well, not to bounce around too much, but you, you mentioned a few key reframes and I love decision-making so much. So Leah, we got to hear what you have to say about that.
2: Well, decision-making is one I struggled so much with that. That's actually what my TEDx talk was about. That's going to be coming out in a few weeks. And my, I have a couple of reframes. One with decision-making is about reframing the finality of decision-making. And, you know, we can't predict the future. So when we think about um, decisions as, oh, my God, if I decide this, then, 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 and we cascade down this spiral of what's going to happen, we've essentially decided we can predict the future and we know exactly what's going to happen. And so I think reframing and realizing decision making is about finding the right decision for right now. We can start to feel a little space and freedom from having to have every decision be perfect. Mm-hmm. Now, the second reframe on decision-making in the same similar vein is to look at where our confirmation bias is landing. Now, we typically have confirmation bias around the decisions that we make, right? And for a lot of us, it's negative. And if we're agonizing over decision and we have a little doubt around it, we can think like, should I buy this thing? Should I take this trip? Should I order this dinner? Whatever. <laughs> like we can start to fixate on, I think, depending on how uncertain we are. If it goes wrong or we don't like it, it's all I knew it. I shouldn't have do that. And we're looking for all the reasons why we knew we were going to be wrong and we're wrong and it sucks and it's bad. Mm-hmm. And my challenge to people is to test out, try on a positive confirmation bias. And instead of saying, oh, I shouldn't have ordered that burger. I should have got the salad because now I have a stomachache or whatever. Like we say, that was awesome. I got to try something new. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, oh, I shouldn't have bought that. Hey, I really wanted this thing. And I was really excited. Like I was really happy to be able to get this for myself. And then when we change that mindset from looking for all the reasons it was bad and we were wrong and we're bad decision makers, looking for some of the signals why it was good or positive or or we made the right call. Because, again, we have just as likely of the ability to predict if it's going to go poorly with a decision that it's going to go well yet we attach the negative. And then when we think it was going to be bad, we're going to want to believe that because our brain likes to be right. Mm-hmm. And so I challenge people to try to be right in a way that doesn't make them feel terrible, especially with a pretty trivial day-to-day decision.
1: No, certainly. Yeah. And, and so feel right, feel good. And then I, I'm thinking we've had Andy Duke on the show, the uh, professional public yeah. player who writes about decision-making and such and and some other decision folks. And they've talked about... You know, keeping a decision journal and like, yeah, what was I trying to think through and how did it go? And so that's sort of a different goal, which was improving the skill of decision making, which in a way takes a lot of the sting out right then and there. It's like, well, yeah, I expect I'm going to miss some. So yeah. that's fine and 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 here's what happened. But if it's inconsequential, yeah, go ahead and feel good about it. <laughs> they don't need to yeah. <laughs> analyze the, and what should I have asked the waiter so as to not have gotten this tummy ache?
2: Yeah. <laughs> you know,
1: that's probably not worth your mental energy and angst. Yeah. And I also love that take about like for right now. And sometimes I find it's uh, when it comes to like starting and stopping subscription services. I don't know why I get really frozen sometimes in terms of like, oh, I don't know. I might use it any day now. So <laughs> do I really want to cancel it? And I was like, well, Pete, you haven't used it for the last two months. So I mean, like you're just kind of burning money. That's silly. It's like, yeah. oh yeah. But I think once this process gets set up, that it would just be perfect. And, and so the the notion of for right now has, has saved the day a number of times. It's like, well, hey, this month I want to use the thing. So let's pay for it. Yeah. And if I don't think I'm going to need it next month, I'll cancel it. And if it turns out I was mistaken, I can uncancel it. Yeah, It's fine. It's not like, I don't know if I'm thinking about like flip-floppers, like
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> in politics, we, we shame the the flip-flopping yeah. candidate or or job hoppers Yeah, on uh, HR is like, Ooh, mm, I don't know about this trend. It seems like you're just uh, hopping around and not committed, yeah. but like there, there is no tribunal judging us yeah. about our subscription memberships or what we get on <laughs> a menu or or any of this stuff. It's like, for right now, does this maybe work for you or not?
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: I dig it. Well, let's talk a little bit about some emotional stuff when it comes to the inner critic and imposter syndrome. How do we wrestle with that? And and what can we do to, to feel more confident?
2: Yeah. So inner critic, I think that's another one where we we need to build some tools around how to recognize when it's the inner critic talking versus our our regular like, rational risk in deciding or navigating mind. And I think one signal that the inner critic's talking is when we're talking in absolutes, when we're saying, I always, I never, they always, they never. And that's really a quick signal to see if, are we in this sort of negative space of the inner critic? I think when we're noticing that we keep running into the same sort of outcomes with the conversations we're having, people with the approach we're trying. Again, I think it's it's when we're stuck in this judgment zone. And one tool that I learned that I think is another really simple shift is reframing the questions we're asking ourselves from why to what. Mm-hmm. When we're stuck in this self-judgment, shame spiral, a lot of times we're asking, why did they do this to me? Why did this happen? Why me? And these are all just iterations of, yeah, why me in different flavors. And when we're in why me zone, we are not going to get out. We're not going to be able to see what's possible. We're not going to be able to see other perspectives because we talk about reasons for why everything's bad. Now, if we shift the why question to what, what happened, What might be going on with the other person, ideally that we say, because we can bring some empathy into the mix. Then we start to see, okay, there's something outside of me that can get me out of this spiral with the inner critic. Mm -hmm. For example, if a coworker sent us a sort of what we feel is a passive aggressive email and we say, why do they send that to me? Why are they always doing this to me? Why are they always picking on me? We're we're just going deeper into reasons why we hate this person. (laughs) But if we say, gosh, what might be going on with this other person? We might realize, mm-hmm. okay, well, they're under a lot of pressure from their boss, right? They're under a lot of, they're under a big deadline or God, their kids are at home for like COVID school closures and they're really stressed and they're just trying to fire off a quick email between meetings so they can get back to whatever they got to deal with. We start to both have empathy. We start to, again, make it less about ourselves. We talked about ego and just be able to see that there's more besides the conclusion that it's because everybody hates me.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's funny. It? I don't know. This is almost passive aggressive the way I've done this at times, but I remember I got an email that, uh, made me angry and, uh, and I tried and i really tried. It's like okay, try some compassion. think about the other person. And I was like, you know what? It must be really hard. That person living their life as a stone cold jerk to <laughs> yeah, all the relationships and friendships they've missed out on. And, and so in a way, I don't know. It's, it's a little I don't even know about myself how authentic I'm being. Like, am I still just trying to like judge them and be mean and stick it oh, to you, them?
2: But you made it not about you. So but you I, I did make you. it not about me. Yeah. And,
1: but it is true. Like and at times that does work in terms of mustering some genuine compassion and empathy for. Yeah, I mean, they maybe they're just busy when they dashed off that email yeah. that was kind of rude. Yeah. Or maybe this is just sort of a, a blind spot in terms of their skill set. Yeah. In general, exactly. or maybe they're under a particular acute stress. But like in any of those circumstances, you could find some compassion for. Oh, that's tricky, and that, and that sometimes it might start a little bit barbed, like "Oh, it must be so hard to suffer from narcissistic <laughs> personality disorder."
2: Yeah, it's a struggle, right? <laughs> to then getting
1: somewhere right, a bit more genuinely, authentically, compassionate for that situation.
2: Yeah, and the last thing you asked about imposter syndrome, and and I think the related piece there is you know, imposter syndrome. This everybody's watching me, waiting for me to mess up, feeling. It's back to this thing that everybody's watching us, right? It's back to that over heightened sense of ego that everybody is watching and, and, and waiting and like looking at everything that we're doing. And so again, this getting a little bit of space from our ego is a really powerful tool for overcoming imposter syndrome because we can realize that it's really likely not everybody's watching, waiting for us to mess up because again, everybody's focused on their own stuff. Mm-hmm. And if people are nitpicking mistakes or, or kind of, being vigilant on our work, that's a separate thing that we can tackle, but it's different than imposter syndrome, right? Because imposter syndrome or experience is really like believing that without a ton of evidence. And so, again, I think this distancing ourselves from the I and the and the me and the ego is one of the most powerful tools I've found for overcoming imposter syndrome and saying, hey, you know, I'm not in the center of the universe and that is amazing and liberating and I like it.
1: <laughs> yeah. That is powerful. My mom said one of her favorite quotes, I don't remember who said it, was, we wouldn't worry what other people thought about us so much if we realized how seldom they did. (laughs)
2: Yes. (laughs) Yes. yes. You're right.
1: They're not thinking about you that much. Yeah. Uh, That's good. Well, Leah, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things.
2: Yeah. To to check out Unstuck, it comes out April 5th, available for pre-order now. And I would love to hear people's reframing stories too. I know we'll have a plug at the end, but I mean, I think think there's a lot there that once we start to explore how to shift that perspective that that folks find possible. So please do get in touch. Yeah.
1: Well, a reframing story that came to my mind. It's so funny. I remember back when I was dating and all oh, the perils emotionally that, that come with that and you know being dumped and such. I remember the, my reframe was like if I was blown off or, or or whatever, I wouldn't say, Oh, she doesn't like me. There's something wrong with me. I would say, Well, this candidate has been disqualified oh. because she <laughs> has not met the key criterion of crazy about Pete Makitis. So <laughs> It's unfortunate we're gonna to have to pass on her because <laughs> she doesn't uh, Yeah check the boxes. So I don't know. It uh it helped me feel less sad. So Yeah. But again, that is me focused, I guess. Maybe there's an even better reframe, Leah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, I think if you took a similar parallel to to not getting picked for a job, like maybe it's something you were really excited about. You feel like you did a great job in the interviews, and in the last, you know, in the last stage you didn't get you didn't get picked. Instead of believing, oh God, I must have misread the interviews. I must not have been qualified. I must have, I will never find a job. And going to these sort of doomsday scenarios and saying, I'm really proud that I got that far. Mm-hmm. Like I got to practice. I got to really practice and see, hey, like I'm really good at these conversations. I can get to the final state. And I think again, not thinking in terms of absolutes is just another way to reframe the situations. So, like, Hey, I had, I had a fun experience on that date. This person's not going to be forever, but I was still able to get out there and see what's out there. So, yeah. yeah,
1: That's good. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
2: Yes. Favorite quote, I would say, in the spirit of reframing is when you change the way you look at things, the things we look at change mm-hmm. by Wayne Dyer. And I mean, when I saw that, I was like, oh my God, it's the definition of reframing. But <laughs> I mean, that's what this is all about, right? Is, is seeing how much is possible when we look at something through a new lens because when we look at things the same way we we obviously keep typically we get the same results right we've always heard we've all heard that quote and so shifting the way we look at things it starts to give us a completely new way of everything around us starts to change unfold be different be new
1: mm-hmm. and have a favorite study or experiment or bit of research
2: My favorite is good old Amy Edmondson's psychological safety. Mm -hmm. I do a ton of work inside companies around helping build effective teams and psychological safety is at the base of that. And I think it's, it's so exciting to see that more and more understood and celebrated. I think it's going to be the foundation to really getting people potentially that have left the workforce as a part of the great resignation to be back, to be re-energized. Um, I think it's establishing psychological safety and, and really fostering that is going to help us move into whatever the next phases of, of work. Was it is it hybrid? Is it more distributed? Whatever it looks like. And so that, I think, is some of the most important work around workplace dynamics that we can learn from.
1: Mm-hmm. And a favorite book? Favorite
2: book uh, is The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle, or Dan Coyle. Mm-hmm. And this book dives into, uh, kind of in the spirit of psychological safety, it examines teams of all different disciplines from NBA to military to restaurants to, and, and what are the building blocks for why those teams were effective and what were the kind of cultural pieces? And I think it has a ton of great strategies that any team and, and can apply to help and create a greater sense of belonging. And and it's just super practical, has great stories, really inspiring, and also informed a lot of the work that I do with, with teams to be more effective and inclusive.
1: Mm-hmm. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job?
2: It's got to be spreadsheets. And this Mm -hmm. is such a boring, (laughs) boring example, I know. But I don't, you know, it can be Excel. It can be Google Sheets. It can be anything. If it has cells and I can like type things in, I love it. And I I manage everything I do in spreadsheets. I find them very easy to use. Uh, Actually, in one of my first jobs, I was working for an executive, someone like a chief of staff. And he said, and I, I was trying to get something done. I was sending an email out with like, hey, here's what's outstanding. And he said, if you're sending anything to a group of people and there's something that has to get done, put it in a table and it will get done instantly. Mm -hmm. And I took this paragraph and like the request that I had and I put all of it into a table using a spreadsheet. And we said, here's the ask, here's the owner and status red. There it is. Yeah, (laughs) nobody wants to be (laughs) read. Nobody wants to be read. And automatically people were responding, oh, no, 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 here it is. Here, I'm done. And I just find... Spreadsheets just yeah, great, simple like evergreen tool for getting stuff done.
1: Mhm. And a favorite habit?
2: Favorite habit is call me boring again, waking up early. This is something in order to do a lot of these things I got going on and have a toddler and, and a day job, it it involves making more time. And so I get up early before my toddler wakes up. I have about hour, hour and a half to work on personal projects, be creative exercise before the day gets started. And, and I always, no matter what happens throughout the day, feel like I got that productive time for myself.
1: Mm -hmm. And is there a key nugget you share that really resonates with folks? They quote it back to you. They retweet you, et cetera?
2: Yeah. So we talked about impact and a quote there I'd like to share is not all heroes wear capes, but when talking about your work, wear the effing cape. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Wear the cape, let it shine, let it Mm -hmm. flow because we have to be our own advocates for our work. So when talking about your work, wear the cape. That's my quote.
1: All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them?
2: Yeah. Check out my website at leahgarvin.com. Follow me on LinkedIn, on uh, Instagram at at leah.garvin. I have a YouTube channel uh, called Reframe with Leah. All those places are places to learn more about my book, Unstuck, to pre-order, to get in touch with me, to learn more about the work I'm doing with coaching and and workshops, everything like that. So I would love to hear from folks.
1: Mm -hmm. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs?
2: Yeah, I would say again, you know, when you are feeling stuck, when you're feeling the same sort of outcomes keep happening, pause and ask yourselves, how else can I look at the situation? Reframe, because it really is unlimited. It has there's infinite number of ways we can apply this. And it's about getting more in tune with finding that moment when we're stuck, recognizing it sooner so that we're not stuck for months or years, but maybe we're stuck for a week or two or a day. Right. So, tuning in with yourself, becoming more self aware so that you can recognize you're stuck and ask that reframing question.
1: All right. Leah, this has been a treat. I wish you much luck and getting unstuck regularly.
2: (laughs) Thank you so much. It's been awesome.
1: I love what Leah had to say about really clear descriptions of what you're doing and worked on isn't so great. So, if you catch yourself saying that, think, oh, wait a minute. Remember, Leah, what could I say that would be better? Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP752. Hope to catch you next time and peace.
0: Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links as well as the perfect episode for your situation you can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.
1: Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com.